This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME. We also have the support of lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you learn creative software and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their free seven day trial, visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame. That's L Y N D A forward slash the candid frame. You can now download the latest episode of the candid frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the candid frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and windows eight. You can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. This is Ivarian X and welcome to another episode of the show. It's been incredibly busy around here and there's never a shortage of things to do but I always love it when I sit down to prepare a new episode for you. I'm often so excited about the conversations I've had that I can't wait until Sunday to share them with you sometimes. But I also want to do so much more with the show and the website, and as I mentioned in the special announcement I released yesterday, I'm looking for your help to help make that happen. I've created an online survey to help me get to know you more. I want to learn who you are, as well as what you want and need from the show. If you haven't already, please make the time today to respond to the questions, as it's going to help me and my team in our plans for the coming weeks and months. You have always been a big part of the success of the show, and I really want to make it the best it can be for you. Now, I met Joe Sartori during the National Geographic exhibit at the Annenberg Space for Photography here in Los Angeles. I had a great interview with him, and I was so excited to share it with you. Unfortunately, the conversation was completely lost when I found that the file was either corrupted or, or just completely gone. It was heartbreaking, to, to say the least. But thankfully, Joel was kind enough to sit down with me again to discuss his work and, and career. I've interviewed a lot of National Geographic photographers. They all share a similar passion for photography, obviously, but there's also a tenacity there that allows them to make images that few people would or could make. Joel's photographs of endangered species is what's been driving much of his work for over two decades, and so his photographs are both beautiful and important. So enjoy our conversation with Joel Sartori. Well, 
Well, Joel, welcome to the Candid Frame. I'm pleased to, to, to have you. We had some snafus after uh, the first time we talked, but I'm glad and really grateful that you could make the time for me this morning uh, to talk to me. So uh, I, I'm really excited and I'm, and I'm really pleased to be able to share a conversation with my audience uh, with you. So, so welcome. Very good. Thanks. Glad to be here. One of the things about um, my favorite National Geographic photographers that they have in common is, is not just the fact that they make great pictures, but that they're really great storytellers. And did, did your love for telling a story and, and just story in general come from just a natural curiosity? Or did you grow up in a household or in a community where, where storytelling was a big part of, of being together? You know, I don't think that storytelling was necessarily a huge part growing up. But I know that it, we appreciated a good story when we heard it when we were when we were kids. It, I think that part of it it just has to do with um, with my personality type. I think if you asked any geographic photographer if they were curious about the world, uh, they would say yes. And none of us hesitate to learn about new things. And and it's just I think that's that's absolutely essential. We come from all walks of life all sorts of backgrounds, educational uh, experiences, where we've lived around the world, that kind of thing. The, but the one common thread is that we're all very curious about, about life and how to relay the, relay the experiences of others and the world around us um, to our readership. That's, that's the common thread. That and being very type A, you know, never mm -hmm. wanting to put anything off till tomorrow. That's very common thread among us. Yeah, I think that when I think about National Geographic photographers, I think about sort of tenacity that they have to have in order to make the story happen and for it eventually to end up on the pages of, of the magazines. Because even though you may be given the the idea for a great concept for, for a story, it doesn't mean that everything is sort of laid out in front of you where you just go to this destination or you just meet this per person and the pictures are, are waiting there. Uh, for it to happen. Oh, right, right, yeah. No, I don't know of anybody that does operate that way. Really, it's it is a lot of work, and it's it's um, you know it's a lot of research. Before I go anywhere, I imagine I research at least a day for every day I spend in the field, and that's fairly common, I think, for most of us. We really don't want to get someplace and be told, "Oh, you should have been here yesterday or last week or last month." We want to hear that you know we're we're there at the right time to try to increase our odds of getting the pictures that'll tell the story of that place or that subject. So, no, it's it's not, at least for me and the, the photographers that I'm friends with that work for Geographic, it's not this kind of carefree thing where we just get off the plane and throw a scarf around our neck and start snapping pictures. It's, it's pretty well thought out in terms of a basic shooting list of what we want to try to accomplish when we're there. That doesn't mean we're forcing things. That doesn't mean that we're setting stuff up. It means that you know, if you want to photograph, if you want to photograph something that happens once a year, you better be at the, you better be there at the right time. Yeah. Um, if you want to photograph something that's seasonal, like bird migration or, or a harvest, you better be there at the right time. And re good research helps us keep from failing, starving, and dying in that order. <laughs> you know the um, the pressure that can be on you is can be enormous not just when you sort of get there and you're trying to make the story, but you're really trying to make your living as, as a photographer, you're trying to, you know, pay the bills, raise a family. And even though people think of a job an assignment with national geographic as, as sort of a benchmark for having made it, 
it seems that as a freelancer for even even that publication, you're worried that this assignment is going to be your last. Right. Oh, you know, sure. If you don't come up with a story. So how does that kind of pressure play into into you making the images images happen? Because not everybody can work under that kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and how much of that informs how you work and, and the choices you make? Well, I I like to work as hard as I can on anything I do. But when you have the pressure of every story being your last, it really ups the ante and makes you do things that well, you wouldn't you wouldn't really take those kind of risks if you didn't have to, you know. I mean, you you are talking about doing a lot of low-level aerials over very remote parts of the world where if the plane's engine goes out, you're really in trouble. You're talking about going to jungles where they have a lot of insect-borne disease that can make you really sick or kill you. I mean, these are places that that we have to go to from, you know, to complete these coverages that make the coverages sing, but there there's a lot of risk in it. Uh, and we know that, you know, going into it, that's part of the part of the deal. But in general, the, the pressure that's, that's on us, we put on ourselves. There's not anybody necessarily barking at us back home. They just tell us, you know, when we take our pictures into the, to the final show at the Geographic, it's a bit like having a, a college course in which your entire grade is based on one test at the end of the year. And so we, we are uh, really focused, you could say that, on making sure that those pictures are not only good, but great. And, and it literally, the, the, coverage that we do has to become a gold standard for the next 10 or 15 years. We want, if it's a story on grizzly bears, it better be the nicest set of grizzly bear pictures they've seen or will see for years to come. And yeah, there's a lot of pressure there, but you know, that's, it's the Mount Everest of photography. And so, you know, if you're climbing Everest, you know that there's risk with it and, and there's reward with it too. So for a lot of us, it's all we've ever done and it's all we, all we know. And um, we wouldn't have it any other way, you know. There's a lot of risk involved in making some of these choices. And some of those risks are are the kind of risks that you just need to make in order to make the, the images happen and make the story happen. But when you're under the kind of pressure of, like, this story may be my last, there seems to be, like, a razor-thin line between that and doing something foolish in an attempt to reach that same goal. So can you give me an example of a situation where you felt like you – you really had to think about, is this worth doing this, you know, doing this in order to get the story and, and, and what your thought process is in terms of making the decision to do it or not to do it? Well, I had a helicopter drop me off in front of a group of muskox and leave me one time. This is many years ago. I didn't, hadn't done my homework. I thought the muskox, which is kind of like this high Arctic yak with these big sharp horns. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought they just, they just stood in a circle with their, with their tails in and their heads out to fight off wolves and they just stand there. Well, they'll actually charge you and try to kill you if you're dumb enough to just walk up to them. Wow. Well, I had done my homework and I proceeded to spend the afternoon being chased around and I'm lucky I was on uneven rocky ground and there was an ocean to stand in because they don't like getting wet. And you know, it's stuff like that. Just, just foolish things where, where you're, I don't know, There've been all sorts of stuff going into places where you know there's insect-borne disease, or there's people with guns, and they're high or drunk. There's uh, it's an unstable area politically, or or you're you know you just you're literally covering grizzly bears or polar bears, and and you know there's risk with that. But you know most of the time, 
most of the time when we're doing these coverages, we try to weigh it out. You can't get any more pictures if you're dead. And so we try to be very smart about that. And, and I often in the field will go out with somebody that really knows what they're doing in terms of that being in that part of the world or working on the species we're trying to cover. Most of the time I'm, I'm out with people that know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and if it's too risky, we won't do it. We don't want to harm the animals we're working on. We don't want to, you know, we certainly don't want to get harmed ourselves. And we try to be very careful and methodical about it. And, and we really try to think things out well. Because bad stuff happens even with the best of plans in place. You know, the risk just comes with a job. And that's what everybody wants to hear about is the, is the risk. When in fact, you know, if you thought about it, and people don't want to hear this, but bears have a lot more to fear from us than we do from them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's millions of people out walking around the woods and a lot of them are armed. You know, maybe a bear kills a person per year, one, on the North American continent, maybe two. And yet we lose twenty to 30,000 people a year in car wrecks. You know, nobody bats an eye. Nobody bats an eye. But if somebody's killed by a bear, boy, it's front page news all over the world. So I think the animals have a lot more to fear from us than we do from them, actually. And it's just not really an issue. Most of these animals just... They want to hightail it and get away. So we're, we're, we're running camera traps more and more now. It's cameras that, where the animal takes its own picture when it breaks an infrared beam walking down a trail. Uh, that's really the, that's kind of the way of the future is to do more camera trap work, to be really up close and intimate with these animals as they're doing what they do, feeding or relaxing or scavenging or fighting. You know, we're trying to get that in a more intimate way rather than just hanging out there with a long lens. So things are changing a little bit. Yeah, so that that sensitivity to the to the animal and the sort of the trauma that can result from just the the presence of human beings around them. Right. Um, right. Is, is that something that you've been seeing sort of change overall over, you know, the last several decades? And is that something that is being done sort of collectively or is it being done more sort of sort of on a sort of individual basis? Well, we're coming up on 7 billion people and all those people spread out and consume resources and get out. And so it's it's really a it's a tough time for a lot of wildlife. It's a tough time for wilderness. And so it's it's uh has it changed since I started? Yeah, the world's got a couple billion more people in it. And that pressure is not going to do anything but increase. So, you know, um Nick Nichols years ago, I heard him interviewed and he said something that made a lot of sense. He says, "You know, it's a good thing we have zoos and and magazines and television shows for people to learn about wildlife and fall in love because the wild can't take it you know if everybody went to yellowstone national park to photograph the wolves there they'd be chased night and day it'd be rough so it's it's really it's really a time when when we have to be thoughtful about what we do we have to make perhaps in the wild photograph animals that are more habituated because they don't freak out. They're not going to run away. As long as we're respectful to them, keep our distance. Those are the type of situations I, I want to work because, you know, nobody wants pictures of animals running away anyway. You don't want to hassle stuff any more than it's already hassled. So I just say, you know, good research, being thoughtful about how we go about things. I treat animals with the same respect I treat people with and try to get a feel non-verbally for whether or not something will allow me to photograph it. And if it won't, it's a species at risk that needs to be profiled and needs to be heard. Uh, I like to think of my pictures as kind of a voice for the voiceless. You know, we'll figure out a way to do it with camera traps or something like that. Your work is largely revolved around um, stories on endangered species and, and species that are, you know, at, at, at risk. And 
your images and the stories have sort of been revelatory for a lot of people. They've discovered, you know, what the situation is, what the circumstances are, and, and you know, what, what their options are in terms of what they can do to, to make a difference. Right. But what was the story or the image for you that was your sort of, oh, my God moment when all of a sudden you you made that discovery for your for yourself? Was it something where you were on assignment or was it someone else's work that, that revealed that to you? Well, for me, it happened from personal experience when, you know, when I was a boy, I got a Time Life picture book from my mother that had, uh, it was on the birds and it had a section in it on extinct birds. And there was a picture in there of Martha, the very last passenger pigeon, taken when she was still alive in 1913. And she died in 1914. And that was the end of a species that numbered in the billions. I mean, flocks that would block the sun for three days at a time, flying past at 60 or 70 miles an hour. You know, this this was a this was a bird that was perhaps one of the most populous on Earth that had been reduced to that single bird in a cage by market hunting, you know, cutting down the roost trees and setting them on fire and packing cannons full of gravel and firing them up into these clouds of birds, just relentless. And I thought I, I never forgot that. And then when I started in for geographic, I started out as kind of a general interest photographer. And I remember doing my first big story was on America's Gulf Coast. And I remember walking on the beach and in about 50 yards, the bottoms, my, the bottom of my feet had turned black from the oil and the tar on the beach. And I saw medical waste. There were blood bags and IV lines and catheters and syringes laying around the beach that had washed up. And I, and then I found a dead dolphin all entangled in plastic rope. And I thought, holy cow, this is just one 50 yard stretch of beach. This is at Galveston, Texas. And I couldn't imagine that People were just so hard on things. And from there, I went up the Houston Ship Channel on a, on a cruise, kind of a, they have a boat tour of the Houston Ship Channel. And the guy running the boat said he hadn't seen anything alive in there in, in the 10 years he'd been doing the tour. And from there, I went over to Lee County, Florida and flew in a helicopter with the mosquito, the mosquito spraying airplanes that coated that county with a mixture of malathion and diesel fuel at dawn every day. And it it kills lots of insects, not just mosquitoes, but butterflies and beetles. And people are out breathing it and they're drinking that water. And all these things open my eyes to the fact that, that nature's really on the ropes. In fact, there's so many of us now that most of the Earth's land that can be tilled is tilled. And um, it's we're really, really destructive. And it comes at great cost. I mean, we stand to lose half of all species now by the turn of the century. And I think it's folly to, to think that you could do half of everything else to extinction and not have it affect humanity in a big way. Very, I think we're going to be very uncomfortable as the world gets hotter, precipitation patterns shift. I mean, we're going to be really miserable and people are going to starve. You know, I mean, it's going to be tough. So it's, 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 a, it's a tough time if you're an animal, for most species, not all, but for most. And, and I think that that it's been a gradual, to answer your question, it's been a very gradual process and one that I think that photography can help shine a light on because most people, you know, they just, they just want to get through their day. They, they care about what's on TV and the price of the pump and I understand that. I do. We ignore all these things that are our peril. You know, we have to have pollinating insects to bring us fruits and vegetables and we have to have healthy forests and grasslands to, to stabilize our climate. Uh, these are all, we have to have healthy oceans to provide, provide us with the food we eat. So these are all the things I think of all the time that I don't think 
the majority of people probably do, but but they will when things get uncomfortable enough for them. In being able to communicate the the stories, uh, I've always appreciated sort of the humor that you bring to to your photographs. And like the the example that you just shown of sort of the devastation on that you know short bit of shoreline, you can't necessarily make an effective story by just showing those kinds of images. And when you do a story, you have a real variety of different photographs that show not just the devastation, but also give you a sort of a macro and a micro perspective on it. Right, right, sure. We can't we can't get readers just by showing them the the the, the depressing things. We have to have some entertainment value in there. There has to be humor in there. Um, we do slip a, me- a message picture in there time and time and again. But, you know, by and large, our, we need to tell people what they can do, show people what they can do, show people what's working. I mean, people know if they care at all, they know things are bad out there environmentally and they want to know what they can do to help. And I think that's a, that's a huge role that we could play. We, we who are conservation journalists, I think it's a huge role we can play is, okay, we've established the fact that things are rough. Well, now what? What can we specifically do to turn things around? That's where my interest really is headed. Can you tell us a story about the uh, koalas in northern Australia? Because I think that's a, a great example of, of a story where, you know, there was, there, were this, there was this animal who was at risk. The concerns of it weren't being taken very seriously. And yet your story sort of revealed not only the threat, but also painted a, a, a broader picture that allowed people to really take in the story and eventually lead to, to some changes. Right. Well, with koalas, that was kind of a short story. I think I worked on that three and a half weeks or so in the field. And it was about koala rescuers in Queensland, in the northern part of Australia. And what they're, they, and I'd researched a lot and worked with these folks a lot and knew a lot of the, the picture possibilities before I ever stepped on the airplane to go. And among those was I could, I could literally live with the people that were doing the koala care, go out with them on runs at night uh, to go pick up koalas that a lot of them are surrounded now by housing developments, these trees that they, they come down out of, uh, maybe it's on a golf course, whatever. They get hit by cars. They get killed by domestic dogs. They don't have any defenses against dog attacks. And, um, and they get disease and, and their habitats shrunk tremendously. They, they have bumper stickers there that say, no tree, no me, you know, with a koala picture because koalas have to have trees to, to live in and to feed off of. So in that case, you know, it was, it's a combination of humorous pictures you know, of a guy that wears a koala outfit to go to schools or of the world's largest koala, which is actually a building with and the eyes glow red at night, you know, to moms taking human mothers taking care of baby koalas at home because their parents have been lost to dog attacks or traffic, traffic accidents. And and then you move into more somber pictures like one week's worth of koalas killed by dogs all laid out on a blue tarp at one wildlife clinic. And these are these are pictures that hopefully stick and move the needle or move the conversation a little bit. The government of Australia had not wanted to declare the the koala, the northern koala, as imperiled. And so not long after our story ran and that picture ran all over the world, they did declare it as imperiled. And I don't I can't say that that picture or that story did it, but I know that it helped. And that's one of the things that that keeps me going, that makes me willing to get on the plane and leave my family for weeks or months at a time is that I think these, I think that people do care and that they, they will react, but they have to be made aware that there's a problem. 
And I didn't even know there was a problem with koalas before I was assigned the story. So I think, um, I think that's, that's kind of the key is that we all, I think all of us believe all of us that shoot issue stories, whether they're social or environmental, we, we all believe that these pictures help that how can they not? I mean, a lack of knowledge or, or total ignorance about these subjects is generally the rule when it comes to especially foreign countries. And so how could these pictures not help? Of course they do. We don't always get the results that we hope for, like koalas, but that doesn't mean we don't try. When, when you're given an, an assignment, how much of the story is already preconceived before you've even exposed the, the, the first frame? And is it a frequent occurrence where the story sort of evolves or, or gets transformed as a result of being in the midst of you know, the people, the communities, the cultures that you're photographing in? Sure. We, we do the best we can when we're at home or in the office at the geographic in trying to figure out, well, where are the pictures here? What, what are the picture possibilities? Now I may get into the field and see that it's totally something different. And we, so we go down, we turn right instead of left, but a lot of times our research is pretty thorough and we're pretty sure that the groups we're working with are on the up and up, that they know what they're talking about. They have a level of expertise where we can believe what they're, we, we trust what they're saying. And so we're, we're not often totally surprised when we get into the field. We're, we're just, we're never really caught that flat footed, just hardly ever, because we try to be very thoughtful and, um, and study. We study up before we go. So it's, it's very seldom for me that I get out in the field and the story takes a complete you know, 180 turn on me. It's, it's generally, we've done our homework. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. Squarespace is making constant improvements to their site. They keep coming up with better and better templates to help you showcase your photographs at their best. Not only do they offer designs that allow your photographs to look beautiful full screen, but they also optimize those same images to look good when people look at your website on their tablet or phone. You don't have to do anything special. It's all, it's all happening automatically. And now you can even design your own logo using the great interface that makes building a website so fun and easy. Try it out for yourself today and take advantage of the 14-day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and just have some fun. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Whenever I need to learn more about a new software, an updated software like Adobe Lightroom, Premiere, or Photoshop, I use lynda.com. For the last few years, it's been my go-to online resource to learn about some aspect of photography, software, or even the business of photography. But it's much more than that because lynda.com provides high-quality videos on other topics including videography, audio recording, songwriting, and so much more. You get to watch and learn from the top experts in their field who are passionate about what they do as well as sharing what they know with you. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com to provide you with unlimited access to the entire library for seven days. Visit lynda.com forward slash candid frame to use it for a week for free. That's L Y N D a.com forward slash the candid frame to start your seven day free trial and help support the show. 
you've been working on something called the the photo arc. Why don't you tell us uh, about that? Because that is largely been the work that you're, you're known primarily for. And why why has it become so important? I mean, you've you've touched on several points, but if you could give sure. us an overall view in terms of what what the work is and what the work involves. Sure. Well, you know, I've done 35 stories now over 23 years or something for Geographic, and some of them have had positive results, but not a whole lot. And I'm thinking, well, you know what, the second half of my career, what can I do to actually move the needle a little bit more towards conservation of species, especially critically endangered species? So I thought, you know, maybe doing portraits of these, of these animals on black and white background using studio lighting to really see them and not have the chaos of nature around them, especially some of these little little critters, little brown jobs that live in thick forest or in the or in the the leaves in the forest floor. If we can isolate them and get people to look these species in the eye, and maybe read about them and realize that a lot of these species are in trouble, maybe we can get them. We can get people to care and save a few of them while there's still time. You know, as I was saying earlier, we're supposed to lose half of all species to extinction by 2100. Well, that's kind of where these pictures come in. These these animals on the black and white backgrounds, they are they become ambassadors. They hopefully lure people into the tent of conservation. When people go to photoarc.com, they look and they learn and they'll see links there to take them right back to the zoos that are doing captive breeding of these animals so they can learn how to donate or help and what the issues are, what the fate of the animal is likely to be. So we feel like, you know, Maybe this is something where we can actually do some some real and lasting good. This this archive will be housed at National Geographic in perpetuity. There's probably I go to the World Zoos and Aquariums mainly because they have so much biodiversity that they're that they're holding and breeding. Maybe the world has ten thousand captive species, and I've got about a third of them now, about thirty three hundred, and I shoot on it. I shoot on the project about every week. You know, it'll be on television and the web and uh, magazines and exhibitions. And so the work's already being used on a daily basis, but it's going to go on probably till the day I die. You know, I'll never get to all of it. And it'll be eventually become a nonprofit, but we need to elevate that. So anybody listening could do me a huge favor. Go to Facebook, look up Joel Sartori, look up the photo arc, like it on Facebook, tell everybody, tell them to tell everybody. We really have, in order to get some traction, we really need lots and lots of people to view the work, to like it, to suggest it to friends, and then perhaps we'll get the sponsorship we need to build this out into a nonprofit. That's kind of where we're headed with it. What are you hoping that the people who look at these images and, and become aware of what's happening, what kind of choices are you hoping that they'll they'll make, or or or, you know, what kind of sort of action steps would do you think? you want to encourage people to think about when they make a look at these pictures and they're thinking about, well, how can I, you know, it's just one person make a difference. Sure. Well, I want people to realize that you can't save the whole world, but you can sure save your corner of it. Everybody can do something. And so there's a million things people can do, believe it or not. And, And the photo arc, these species actually hopefully act as beacons and they, they call people in, and they this is my ideal ideal world, obviously. If if they fall in love with, let's say, a little a little primate species, or even koalas, let's say koalas, they see a, they see a baby koala in the photo arc as a portrait. They click on it. It takes them to a page that tells them where the animal was photographed, 
there's links there that take them back to the zoo. They could donate their time. They could donate their money to the zoo to help to help feed and care for koalas because koalas are expensive that just in, in maintaining them and housing them, especially in this country where food has to be flown in for them every week, the eucalyptus leaves. And, and so beyond that, beyond just seeing a species, caring about it enough to read about it a bit and click around, what else can people do? Well, it, it, you can't help, if you read about the threats to a species, you can't help but realize that how we live affects species. For example, in Nebraska, we're trying to push a, a bill through the legislature right now that bans the sale of shark fin products in restaurants here. All the way in Nebraska, a landlocked state. Yes, indeed, there are restaurants that serve shark. Well, that's a terrible thing because sharks are really, really in trouble, and they are a keystone species in the ocean, and where you lose the sharks, you get terrible imbalances in fish, and these are fish that we need to feed ourselves. So it's, it's kind of key to think, you know what? There are things I can do. What else can I do? If you see a picture of a walrus, you look around, you realize that he's that climate change is affecting walrus more than a lot of species because the ice they need to rest on is melting. In the summer, it's gone virtually in a lot of places. Well, what can I do to prevent ice from melting? Well, you can watch the emissions that come out of your house. You can insulate your home. You can drive a smaller car. You can drive it less. You can you can eat seasonally and not not pay some trucking company to move strawberries across the nation in the dead of winter uh, and burn all that diesel fuel and throw that carbon into the air so that you can eat something that, that you know doesn't occur in your area at that time of the year. So watching how you eat, watching how you spend your money, every time you, you break out your purse or your wallet, you're voting. You don't have to wait for an election year. You're voting. You're saying to that retailer, I approve of where this was made, what it's made from, and I want you to do it again and again. So, you know, how you spend your money, that's real power to change the world. And again, you cannot save the entire planet, but you can certainly think about your lifestyle choices. And I think, and I'd like to think, that these, these portraits, these photo art portraits, are engaging enough to get people to, to want to read a little bit more on the site and learn about how their consumer choices affect the animals they see. So there's 100 decisions you can make a week to save species or to help destroy them. It's kind of up to you. Yeah. What are some of the choices that you and your family have made along those lines in terms of you know, where you choose to spend your money or, or what you end up choosing to do both individually and, and collectively as a family? Right, well, we, we insulated our house really, really well when we bought it and cut our heating bill virtually in half. We recycle everything. When we go to the market, we really watch what we buy. We try not to buy as much meat now because it's, you know, it's a lot less green eating meat than plant material. Not to say we're strict vegetarians or anything, far from it yet, but we really watch it. You know, we don't fill up on meat anymore. It's kind of like a side thing for us now. We watch the kind of vehicles we drive. I have an old pickup from my father that I only drive if I'm hauling architectural salvage or agriculture stuff. We have a little farm near here. I don't drive it empty. We drive a Prius and we drive a little Honda Fit. And we walk a lot and we ride our bikes when it's nice enough here in Nebraska. We really watch, um, we watch our, our, how we spend money. We're not going out and buying, a lot of stuff we do is, is the absence of doing it. Like we don't go out and buy bedroom sets or dining room sets made out of old growth forest wood. We'll buy an antique set made out of an American wood walnut, let's say, or oak, something that's been around for a long time 
and isn't leading to the destruction of tropical rainforests. We do not buy anything with palm oil in it because palm oil is leading to the destruction of the rainforests in Asia that house orangutans and hornbills, for example, just really rare, amazing species. We, we, think, about, we think about virtually every dollar we spend. We truly do. We try to drive as little as we can, and we just we keep our house cold in the winter, and we keep it pretty warm in the summer, and we just try to be really thoughtful about how we spend our money. That's the that's the big thing. And you know what? We talk about it a lot with friends, and we try to influence them too. Being green isn't a hardship. It actually saves you money. It makes you money if it saves you money. So for us, it's something that we're we're happy to do. We're proud to do it. All the way down to our clothing, we buy our clothing. Uh, we buy recycled clothing at secondhand places a lot, but it's it's name brands and it's brand new <laughs> a lot of the time. But it keeps, you know, it just it keeps us, we think, constantly reminded in terms of of how we live our lives. We try to just we try to just be very very thoughtful about that and and read and learn and um, we don't just put an iPod in and listen to the same songs over and over again we try to actually be thoughtful people yeah well your, your family is obviously very important to you and you've been very very uh, generous in terms of sharing how your choice to follow this career has you know impacted your your family and when when you're starting off a career you're you can be very sort of aggressive in terms of you know trying to make the most of every and each opportunity but but tell me how in res, in retrospect how you feel about you know how pursuing a career as a as a photojournalist as a National Geographic photographer has shaped who you are as 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 a father and, and a husband. Well, it's it's uh, it's made me absent a lot. You know, as a geographic geographic photographer, we're gone a lot. I'm gone probably half the year, but I like to think that when I'm home, I appreciate my family and spend time with them doesn't mean I don't work. I work all the time. I probably work seven days a week, but, but when good stuff happens, I stop what I'm doing. I try to help with homework. We go to the movies, we hang out, we have dinner together when we can. I just try to be a good dad. You know, I try to be as good or better than somebody who's never gone, you know, because I appreciate things more, I think. And I don't know. We just, we try to, um, we try to all, all of us, all of us, you know, my family, my wife's had cancer and my son's had cancer in our family of five here. We've been hit twice. They're both fine now, but we try to make every day count and we try to, um, we try to appreciate things. We don't fight and argue about little stuff and it's all kind of little stuff. And we just try to enjoy every day. We realize we're passing through and we just want to see what's the most we can make with our, with our time on earth. What are, what are our legacies going to be? So in that respect, National Geographic, back to your original question, what effect has National Geographic had on me? Well, it's made me the person I am today. And, it's, and there's no way I would be as thoughtful about this if Geographic has not, had not sent me around the world to see what's happening and to see how other people live and to see the, just to see the fact that we're consuming pretty much the entire surface of the earth, humanity is. And so Geogra what has Geographic done for me? Well, everything literally everything and how they influenced how I think and how I behave every breath I take just about. I mean, you cannot go to a, a developing nation and see people starving 
and see the landscape just in ruins and not have it change you and not have it make you want to act. And I see that every year. So uh, sometimes monthly. So it's changed me deeply. And, you know, my family's influenced by that as well. I mean, you can't live with me and not pick this up. I'm going to talk when I come home. So how have they changed me? Well, I am National Geographic. That's that's me. You had plenty of situations where you've been felt, felt ill, where you've been attacked, mm-hmm. you know, where, you, where you've, you know, experienced all these sort of physical challenges in, in a variety of different ways. But, but you've been at it for about 20 years. And, you know, when you're young, you can put yourself through a whole lot in terms of your body and even your head um, in order to pull off the assignment. But now as you're, you know, you're getting older, how do you find yourself adapting to the fact that your body is can't do what it did when you were 25? Right. Well, I tell you, it's, uh, it's sobering. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, hopefully, hopefully it's, I don't know, it's something that we, we just learn to cope with by shooting around it. You know, maybe I'm not climbing mountains. Maybe I'm doing things that are all in lowlands, but I can still get around. I feel good. And I don't really think about, I don't really think about, um, about that too much. I, I do a little bit in that I know I'm not going to want to try to race up mountains or try to climb trees, but you know, I was never that into that anyway. I am from flatland country and I was really hoping to, um, survive. And so I was, I was a lot less likely than some of the other guys to want to do really, really extreme things. Although the extreme things just happen, you know, it's, it's funny. There's a, the geographic photographers, we, we formed a, a website called the photo society, which is photosociety.org. And they have a page there that would be a hoot for your folks to, that are listening to check out. It's called reality check. And I'm on it right now. It says it's a glamorous life and it's a grid of things that have happened to photographers. And I don't know, maybe there's, maybe there's 50 things here and I'm going to read a few of them. You know, when I went and it's the number of photographers affected, like it said, like one of them in the first row says falls, how many geographic photographers have fallen? 12. Okay. I've done that. Um, severe diarrhea, 90. Yeah. I've been there. Burns. Yep. Plane or helicopter crash. Yeah. A couple times. Scaffolding collapse. Yeah. Run checkpoint, yes. Charged by elephants, sure. Dehydration severely, yes. Hypothermia, yeah. Grow burn, sure. Held at gunpoint, threatened, detained, abducted, yes. <laughs> Groped, yeah. Uh, broken bones, I've never broken any bones. Car crash, sure. There's one here that's hilarious. It says, number of photographers, two. Okay, assault by Florida Panther, two. Photographers, two assignments, same panther. <laughs> so it's the same panther that, that was a captive animal down in Florida that had uh, gotten after people. I photographed that panther too. It's just, I like to think of it as overly affectionate. But assorted animal attacks, flesh-eating parasites. I've had leishmaniasis, which wants to, it starts out as a big hole in your leg that won't heal, and it wants to get into your sinus cavities and eat away all your mucosal membranes. That one stinks. I had, uh, I thought I was... Uh, Oh, I went deaf one time from a fungus, you know, just, just all this stuff. I had a run in with a, I was in a bat cave that had the Marburg virus in Uganda a couple of years ago where I was really nervous. I was going to get it and die. But again, we don't, that's the good stuff that all the, the public wants to hear about, you know, mm-hmm. that's what they want. But the reality is we're trying our best 
not to get not to get whacked and not to get hurt or sick because this, the stuff I just described that's the stuff that happens when we're when we we think we're in the clear when we think we've researched to the point where we're not really going to have anything bad happen to us so we're really cautious about it and still all that junk happens why do you think people are always curious about that stuff and eager to hear those horror stories sometimes? Oh, because it's juicy. It's really juicy. I mean, that's the kind of thing we go to the movies for, right? Yeah, that's true. Except with, except with us, it's, it's the real thing. You know, I, if you look at movie posters, when you go to the theater or you look in advertising, it's always some guy that looks real muscular and he's swinging a gun at somebody, right? He's pointing a gun at somebody. And if it's a drama. And I mean, like seriously i mean if if people were to hang out for us for a while they would realize that that having a gun swung on you is no fun it's terrifying you have it done enough you're going to get killed and we're just trying to make pictures the safest way we can and get back home because you can't take any more pictures if you're dead so that's that's just that's all there is to it and most of the time it's not the big stuff that gets you it's not gunplay or or um Bad guys, it's it's little insect-borne diseases like malaria or dengue fever. Those are the things that we really worry about and have to have to pay attention to. Do you have moments where you're in the midst of something and you and you feel like I'm just I'm just not going to do this again. I've just had enough because it it seems like everyone in a, in, a, in a job has some sort of experience where they just go, you know. I just don't want to be doing this anymore and I just want to move on. Or does the fact that you are constantly challenged, having the opportunity to be creative, sort of make those those kind of thoughts just momentary? Well, I think all of us, if we're in the field enough, we think, what am I doing here? This is really a drag. Because most of the time it's kind of drudgery. It's usually it's usually you're too hot or too cold, it's too buggy, it's too wet, it's too dry. And so you think, this is miserable. This is really miserable work. But, you know, all that goes away when you're making good pictures. You don't even think about that stuff. You just can't wait to get out of bed in the morning and start in again. So the camera is a great shield, and it, it's an emotional barrier, and it's also, in a way, a physical barrier. It, 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 you quit thinking about your own state of mind or your physical condition when there are really great frames in front of you. That's it. I think all of us kind of live for that. And um, there's really nothing better. There's nothing better than, than making really, really good pictures. And I think the majority of photographers would agree with me where they shouldn't be in it. So, I mean, I know the friends of mine that work at Geographic. We cannot wait to look at our work. I don't care what it is that we've shot. We can't wait to look at it, you know? We can't wait. Before we did our interview, I just got home from my accountant's office, and I took some pictures of, of his staff in their office. You know, like this guy's standing at their desks, Detail shots of the weird socks they're wearing or the pile of paperwork on their desk because it's getting to be tax time. And I can't wait to edit it. I'm very excited about looking at these mm. pictures of these accountants sitting at their desk. So if I'm excited about that, imagine how I would be if I got photographs of the very last of some sort of animal or of some tribal ritual somewhere that few people have ever witnessed, you know, or of a prairie fire burning across the horizon at dusk. I'm just as excited about it as the day I started, probably more so, because I enjoy it more now. I'm not as afraid that I'm going to fail, starve, and die if I don't do great on an assignment. And I have more fun, and I think the work's better for it, for having fun and enjoying it and believing that there's a mission and a purpose. Because some of the stuff we do, you know, obviously isn't fun if it's about 
some terrible environmental tragedy. It's not fun at all, but, but boy, that fire is still there. And when you're done trying new things and learning and, and being excited about it, you just, you're done. There's just not any of those types of photographers at National Geographic. So t tell us uh, where you are now in terms of your, your, your project, uh, the, the photo arc. You did come out with a book some years ago called Rare. I Portraits did, yes. of uh, American yes. Endangered Species. But sure. yeah. this is an ongoing thing for you. So what's, what's next in terms of not just producing more photographs, but, you know, uh, what you're hoping to do with the work to create greater awareness? Sure. Well, uh, with Rare, you know, I'm continuing to work at zoos nearly every week, zoos and aquariums. And I was out with a guy that was doing rare sparrow banding last week in Florida. Actually, I'd, I'd done some work down there and I had an opportunity and sparrows aren't necessarily something that are kept in zoos. So I went out with this guy because the photo arc's about showing the biodiversity we have at this point in time. And so I'll photograph everything. But in terms of where the photo arc goes, right now where we are about, as I mentioned, about a third of the world species photographed. So, so far the captive species now. 10 to 12,000 captive. We're about a third of the way there. There are millions of species on the face of the earth, but it's just the captive ones primarily that we're targeting because we can get a lot more done that way. And then the next step is to build the, the reach of this through uh, another book, probably called The Photo Arc, and that'll be done by National Geographic in the next year or two. Um, there'll be a traveling exhibition or two with that. There might be a television show on it, radio certainly, uh, interviews such as this one. The goal is to grow this until it gets big enough to be kind of financially stable and and can become a nonprofit so that so that this it lives on well after I'm gone. But to be a nonprofit, I really believe that it has to be well funded. And right now it's just me funding most of it out of my pocket. Geographic gives me a stipend. They gave me a fellowship for which I'm very grateful. And the magazine, National Geographic magazine, has made sure that I get assignments. Uh, that lend themselves well to photo arc. So both the missions department and the magazine have been tremendously supportive that way. But a lot of the shoots that I do, they just come out of my own pocket. What I would dearly love is that we get our readership numbers up enough and some big company that cares comes along and says, you know what, we'll help you go nonprofit. We know it's expensive to have staff and to do this. And see, we, I give all the pictures away to the zoos I go to. So it's not a very smart marketing plan right now. We just go to these zoos and shoot and we give them copies and they allow me to use the work as I need to. But that's kind of where we're headed. I've started, an, I started a nonprofit a few years ago here in Nebraska called the Grand the Grassland Foundation with a couple of friends. And we were always struggling for money. And I always swore if I ever do a, start another nonprofit, we're going to be well-funded before we ever go down that path because I don't want to have to think about it all the time. That's virtually mostly what we thought about was how to raise money so we can keep going. Mm. So that's kind of where we're going. It's not too sexy, but it's, it's enduring, we hope. And it's uh, purposeful and it's, we're persistent. If nothing else, we're persistent. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that they recommend – another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? There's a lot of photographers who, whose work I love dearly. But in terms of somebody that I, any chance I can hear him speak, any chance I can read something that he's written, I do it. I drop everything and do it. And that's Nick Nichols, Michael Nick Nichols. He is a, a, a longtime geographic staffer. 
He's an editor at large now. He's based out of Charlottesville, Virginia. He f- he founded the Look Three Photo Festival there, mm-hmm. and his his work's not only groundbreaking. Most of the time, in in each story he does, he has a picture or two that are very groundbreaking and newly newly seen. But his uh, but his thoughts on how to save the world's wildlife are really exactly where we need to be going, and he's well worth listening to. And he has some amazingly candid observations about what this life does to your family, um, what, it, what it's like seeing the destruction of the planet, the hopeful things that he's seen, and just thoughts on great photography in general. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a guy I, I pay attention to closely, and um, he's a mentor, you know, for me in that way. He probably doesn't even know that. I bet he doesn't know that. <laughs> but he has a lot of admirers, and I'm sure folks tell him that. But that's the guy that if, if you're interested in wildlife photography and especially conservation photography, you know, where you believe that it's not enough to show the butterfly on the flower, you got to show the butterfly on the flower with the bulldozer coming in because that's what's really going on. Um, Nick Nichols is probably the guy to, to watch, and he's – you can see and hear him on the web quite easily if you type in his name, Michael Nick Nichols. Well, thanks for that. So where can people go to find out more about all the work that you're doing? Sure. You, they can go to joelsartori.com, J-O-E-L-S-A-R-T-O-R-E, joelsartori.com, or photoarc.com, either one, and they'll they'll be able to start in. And I hope they do. I hope folks uh, wouldn't mind. And again, Spreading the word about photo work, that's the, you know, that'll take up the rest of my life, but it's pretty healthy what we've got so far and um, hopefully worth watching. Well, Joel, thank you so much for making the time for me again. I, I enjoyed uh, talking to you as much as I did the first time. My pleasure, anytime, and I mean that. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. You can show your continued support for the work we do here at TCF by making donations of any amount using PayPal. By clicking on the links in the show notes or on the website, your contributions help us to improve the show. Each episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you with the contributions of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music is available via incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.